In Jesus we pray, amen. This morning we're going to be in the first chapter of the second letter to the Thessalonians. If you're in a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 989. We learned, and as we studied the first letter, uh, Pastor Cam gave us some intro. You'll remember back in Acts 17, we saw that the Apostle Paul went to Thessalonica to establish the church. He met much difficulty there, much trouble, and made a hasty, uh, a hasty leave from there. And then winds up going to Corinth where he pens this first letter. And likely the second letter is commonly agreed that he is at Corinth. He's at Corinth about 18 months. He writes both letters from there. And so we can surmise that these letters are probably months to a year apart as he writes them. It's helpful when we, when we read a letter like this just chapter we're breaking into and, and, and the rest of the chapter because we begin to realize that when he makes points, helps us understand what he's responding to. And so by reading this second letter, it's not very difficult to realize what's happening at Thessalonica that causes him to write it. Because he's written this first letter, and I am, I am confident when the Thessalonians received his first letter, they were surely excited to hear from the apostle. As we saw in the first letter, there was much confusion going on in the church. There was difficulty. There was affliction. Uh, there was persecution going on at Thessalonica. And he writes to them this first letter that we've, we've studied thoroughly uh, with Pastor Kim. But now we begin and open this second letter in the first chapter. And what we realize is they're likely responding to him saying, but, but Paul... It's worse now. You wrote us this letter, and it's, it was great, but it's worse for us now. There's a lot going on at this church as we begin to look at what's going on. They're being ostracized by their friends. They're losing their jobs. Some are just quitting because they understood Paul to say, Jesus is coming back any minute. Well, I'll just quit. Why should I do anything if Jesus is coming back any minute? But at the same time, those that are serving and working, now they've got to make up for them, and it creates difficulty. Some are likely responding to this letter that seems to be floating around, and, and it's noted to be from Paul. It's not. But it's saying that the day of the Lord's already come. There's all kinds of confusion happening in the life of the church. And Paul begins this letter, and he's writing to them. Some of them are probably wanting to respond to the persecution in kind, right? It's a natural response for us. When someone hurts me, I'll hurt you. That is the natural response for mankind. And the text that's leading our worship this morning in this portion of our worship is in Romans 8.35, and it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the segue. This is a great segue, and it gives us a good demonstration of what's happening in the life of the Thessalonians and in their struggle. And this gives us the context with which Paul writes this letter. And the, and the pastoral side of this, of, of this great apostle, along with all of the pastors then and now, they want us to see and see truths that help us think differently about our circumstance. That's what he's after in the second letter, is to help us look at our circumstance as dire as it might be, as difficult as it might be, and know Jesus sits at the right hand that the Lord is working, and we'll see this play out in this letter. That's the context that I want us to read. Let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 together, beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always give thanks to you, God, for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love for every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know him, who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you who was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a powerful beginning of this message that he has for the church. It's a powerful thing. The apostle wants to encourage them and encourage you and I to think differently. And we're going to see his motivation for that in three ways in this chapter. We're going to see a way to think differently through his praise. And we're going to see a way to think differently through his promise. And a way to think differently through his power. 
just a couple of thoughts as we as before we jump into the body, and that's the the, the very beginning, the very the very greeting that he sends to them, because it's almost identical to chapter one one of of the first letter. When we look at the two, they're very very similar, but it's a he does give us an addition in this second one that he did not add in this first greeting. In the first letter. 1-1, it ends simply with grace to you and peace. But here in our text, that Second Thessalonians 2-2, it ends, or chapter 1, verse 2, it ends with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says this phrase twice, which is the very beginning of the encouragement to the church, right? What he's identifying is the Father and the Christ are the same source, and they are the ultimate source. And so this is the very beginning of his encouragement as we step into this letter. And so we open up here in verse 3. I want us to see that we can think differently through his praise. And that's how he opens. uh, Let's look at verse 3 together. We ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And so he's helping them see and know and understand that through the turmoil, through the difficulty, through the confusion, we see God working in you, church. And because of that, we are obligated. We are bound. We are, we, we, we ought, he says, but the word ought seems a little bit light when you look at all of it because it is more bound to, to praise and be thankful to the Lord. And he's talking about he and uh, Silas and uh, Sylvanus and Silas. Uh, you'll see that in different translations. I think it's the same person, more of a formal name for Silas. But these three are bound, he says, we are bound to always to give thanks to you as is right because of what God's doing through them. Their faith is growing abundantly right in the middle of all of their difficulty, right in the middle of all the confusion, right in the difficult times for them where they're saying, ho, woe is me, Lord. God's working right in their midst. He says, church, your faith is growing He is praising the Lord. He is giving them encouragement. He's praising them in some ways through the Lord. And this faith is not a faith that we would read about in a book. No, this is not faith that we get just sitting in a pew on Sunday. This is a tested faith. This is the same kind of faith that James talks about in his letter where he's counted all joy, my brothers, when trial comes, that kind of faith. Or in Romans 5 where he says, rejoice in your suffering. Right? It's that kind of faith. It's not an easy faith, but it is a tested faith. And that's what he's encouraging them with. And it's what he encourages you and I with. A faith that's not tested. What, how, how can we know? And you'll see this plays out more as we go through the text. He then reminds them in verse, uh, he says, 
in the latter part of this same verse, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So not only is your faith growing, but your love for one another is increasing in the midst of it. And he is encouraging them in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of having to do without, in the midst of frustration with one another, in the midst of all of the things that you and I can experience in this life. That's what they're experiencing. And in the midst of it, he wants them to understand, yes, I know it's hard. I know you're going through a lot. But know that God's working. Your faith's growing. Your love is increasing. It has become evident for everyone. And so he encourages them with praise. Praise of God. Praise of them. Thankfulness to the Lord. And thankfulness for them and what they're going through. He is teaching them to think differently about the persecution they face, about the affliction they're enduring. He is teaching us to see this through his filter. That's what he's trying to accomplish. Here in verse 4, he, he, he also encourages them because they and all of their stuff that's going on with them are actually helping other churches. And he gives them an encouragement this way when he says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the church of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and all the afflictions that you are enduring. Your faith's growing. Your love's increasing. You're helping other churches. He's declaring to these churches. And the Grange Baptist, I want you to understand also that your pastoral team boasts about you. I just need for you to know that because your love of God is evident. Your love of God is evident through your generosity. Your love of God is evident for your love for one another. Your love of God is evident because you love everyone who comes in this door. Regardless of where they're from, what they're doing, what they look like, you love them. And that's the mark of God on us. Sometimes I'm, I get kind of embarrassed because I'm, I'm the president of the new network. And sometimes I go to the meetings, uh, a new, um, by, by network I mean network of churches. We've merged three, two, three associations into one large network. And I sit as the first moderator and president of that representing you. But when I'm at meetings, I, I sometimes leave a meeting because we start talking about churches and what's going on in churches, and I feel like I'm bragging about LaGrange Baptist. Oh, yeah, but well, our people do this and our people do that. And I walk away from there, you know, kind of feeling bad. Maybe I, you know, I kind of put that out there bragging too much. And that was encouraged when I read this text because I'm not bragging. I'm just boasting. I'm boasting in the Lord, right? That's not bragging. We're just boasting in the Lord. Amen? You bet. I do want to make sure I'm not boasting in you and I as a people. The boasting goes to the Lord and the work that he's doing through the church. That's what Paul's talking about here. So he seeks to help them think differently through his praise. And now we'll take a look and how he seeks to them to think differently about his promises. Let's take a look at verse 5. 
In verse 5, he says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Paul is wanting the church then and now to understand that in the midst of this suffering, he is passing a judgment. Just a sidebar for just a moment. I, in a previous life, I used to work in heavy highway construction, and I traveled our state a great deal. I was working for Apex Contracting, and I was uh, over the state of Kentucky, so I moved in lots of different arenas. I was, had a project going in Hyden, Kentucky, and another one in Harlan, and I was traveling back and forth. Those are up in the mountains of eastern Kentucky. One day I was traveling on my way to Harlan uh, from, from Hyden. A car turned right in front of me. I broadsided that car. I can still see the young lady's face right in the passenger as I slammed into her going about 50 miles an hour. She was injured significantly, which I regret, of course. Uh, but then they sued the company that I worked for, and they sued me personally. I wound up in court in Hyden, Kentucky, a flatlander up in the mountains, uh, nervous, kind of ang anxious. I knew I was not at fault. But when my attorney leaned over at the table in the courtroom and said, do you know the judge, the defendants, and most of the jury were all at a barbecue together yesterday, right? That really didn't help me feel better. But after four days of trial, witnesses, different ones coming, um, me being defamed over and over and over again, my driving skills being torn apart and how, how neglect I was and all of these things, and then came the judgment. And the judge came declaring me completely innocent of the charges. I just want to tell you, it was a good, good day. And I felt really good about the judgment. This is what, the, so, there's, so there's a judgment here that Paul's talking about. And this judgment's coming to two people groups. And the first people group that he's talking about is the church at Thessalonica. And he is declaring a righteous judgment upon them that is an encouragement. Just let me tell you, it's an encouragement. When someone declares you right, especially in the midst of all that you're going through, all of the turmoil, all of the confusion, all of the persecution, all of the affliction, and someone says, hey, you're, you're okay. This is right for you. There's a righteous judgment that he brings to them. And he says that it is that your, your trials, your difficulties, is the very evidence that the judge is using to account you worthy of the kingdom of God. Imagine, we, we don't generally think that way. The suffering is the very evidence. When Pastor Cam was preaching back in, chapter, in the first letter, we, we saw in chapter 3, verse 3, that we are destined for affliction. We also saw in chapter 5, verse 9, that we 
that God has not destined us for his wrath. And so the concept that my affliction is somehow God angry at me is not true. Somehow that my affliction and persecution is God's absence in my life is not true. This is what Paul is striving for, for the church at Thessalonica and the church in LaGrange, Kentucky. That our difficulties, our circumstances, our affliction, our persecution is not God angry. It is the very evidence that he's using to declare his people worthy. What a glorious way to think about our circumstance. What a glorious way to think about our circumstance. It is the very evidence that God is using to declare us worthy of him. This is a new concept for many. A faith is being tested by fire. Not a fire of destruction, but a fire of purity. This is a test of faith. This is what James talks about in his letter that I, that I referred to a moment ago. Count it all joy, my brothers, when various trials come your way. Know that the testing of your faith brings about steadfastness. This is the name of our entire series, is steadfastness, holding fast in the midst of what's going on. And, and, and the Lord continues to give us the tools the emotional tools to stand fast. And that's what he's about here in this portion of the letter. Some of the Thessalonians may have been tempted to repay in kind for those that were doing them harm. And now Paul wants to address that as we think about what he's writing here. In verse 6, he says, Since indeed... God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed. It's an odd thing, I think, for many Christians to think that way, that God's going to, to seek vengeance on those who bring us harm, a God of love, a God of uh, that we see it's a, it's a Christian idea of this love of God, and it's true. God is love. It is for, for sure true, but he's also a just God. He is a God of justice. And when the Psalms are filled with, the, with writers who declare, pleading with the Lord to deal with my enemies, and now here he's encouraging them and this is a, a kind of a step-by-step -step through this portion of the letter where he is helping the Thessalonians and he's helping you and I on how to respond to those who bring harm or bring accusation or bring any form of persecution against us. And the first step in that rethinking process is he wants us to know, hey, the Lord's got it. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. He is going to repay and this is not unusual for him. It should not surprise us. Because in Genesis 12, he told Abram, right? 
we, we are all part of Abram. <laughs> Those who have faith like Abraham are part of Abraham. And he told Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who bring you harm, I will curse. This is what he's referring to. When we jump ahead thousands of years, this is what he's referring to. He has a promise to repay with affliction those who afflict them and us, he says. Any frustration about justice, when those who do so seem to be able to do it freely, when they seem to be able to do whatever they want to do, Jesus just said, no, no, they're in for a wide-eyed accountability. And that accountability is, is coming in this part of the letter. But he also, he doesn't just tell us about the recompense. He doesn't just tell the Thessalonians that their affliction will be afflicted upon those. He also says you'll get relief when Jesus comes. What an encouraging note that is for you and I. Whatever it is, whatever struggle we have, whatever we're going through, relief is coming when Jesus returns. You say, yeah, but it's so far away. And I get it. But he's not, we're not doing this alone. He's with us. He's working out our faith. He's working out our salvation. He's working out our holiness. And he's walking right beside us in the midst of it all. So we're not doing this alone. Now comes a part of this document that is horrific in judgment. Listen to what he writes in verse 7. He says, I'm going to back up just a little bit. In verse 7, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from his glory of his might. This is a horrifying text. This eternal destruction, the flaming fire. I, I spoke earlier of the, of the fire that comes and purifies us. That's the affliction and persecution. That's a purifying fire. What he has in mind here is a destructive fire that destroys. And it is hard as we begin to think that through in all of its application. One of the things that I, I discovered as I, as I look through this text, is it's not written for evangelistic purposes. I've heard lots of sermons on this text. I went out and I kind of looked at a lot of folks and what they preach on, and most of it turned out to be hellfire and brimstone and using this text. And what I realized as I looked at this and I looked at it closely, he wrote it to Christians. 
It was not written to be evangelism. It was written to be an encouragement. Well, well, how does it encourage us when we think of such a horrific thing? He is teaching us how to think differently about those who persecute, those who harm. Do not repay evil for evil. It was in Pastor Ryan's text last week. He has given us this horrific picture of what's coming for anyone who is outside of God, anyone who is not obedient to the gospel, anyone who has afflicted his church or his people. Let me ask you this question. What could a person do to me or to you that would cause us to want this for them? I can't, I've been thinking about it all week. I cannot imagine what someone would do to me that would cause me to want this for them. No. No, the Apostle Paul is helping us see the end result of his powerful, awful justice so that we can be set free to love our enemy. To actually pity one who comes against me to harm me or to hurt me. When I think about what their end result is, oh, please, let me find a way to help you. Not fight back against you. Not get defensive of everything you say. This is what the context is written for. That we can love that we can endure. Now, to be sure, it is a powerful, powerful, frightening text for anyone who does not know God. And if you don't know him, please, you need to hear this text. If you don't know him here in this congregation, or if you don't know him wherever you are in the world, you need to hear this text. I'm going to read it for us one more time. And we'll be granted relief to all who afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with the mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. What could someone do to me that would cause me to want this for them? That's the lesson. That's what he wants us to rethink and how we respond. If you don't know him, this is a message for you. There's destruction coming and permanent separation, and there's no hope. If you don't know him, please turn to him. Turn away from your sin. Confess him with your mouth. Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Jesus 
suffered a terrible death to pay the wage of our sin. To be sure, love is the motivator of salvation. And, and this, this document demonstrates the, the punishment if we don't. And Jesus himself uses, the, uses fear as the motivator also. In Matthew, I think it's in Matthew 10, 28, he, he says, Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If you don't know him, please don't put him to the test. Today is the day. Today you can come to know him. But to just come to stay out of hell is not the right way. We can come because we're afraid, but love is going to be the need for salvation. Certainly Jesus talks about this a great deal in all of his time. But Jesus always says, love me. A text like this is not a get-out-of-hell-free time to come to Jesus. But we can come to Jesus, and we can start with being afraid. But it will turn to loving him and submitting our life to him. It is a, it is a journey. And I would encourage anyone who is outside of him to start that journey today, to come to know him. So Paul seeks to encourage us to think differently through his praise. He thinks differently, he wants us to think differently through these promises. And now finally, in this last section, he wants us to think differently through his power. Let's listen to this last section. Beginning in verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. Verse 11, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy for good in every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We can think differently about the trials and the tribulations and the struggles that we have in the knowledge that it is his power that is seeing us through it all. That's what he's talking about here in this text. That he in his calling may fulfill every resolve for good and every good work of faith by his power. He strengthens our faith. He encourages our faith. He grows it. He works with us and sees us through to the very end. What an encouraging idea that our survival, our endurance, our working through these tribulations and these afflictions and these difficulties, we're never doing it alone and we cannot fail. That's the most encouraging part of the text. And why can we not fail? 
Because, in verse 12, it says, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. The name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. God the Father will see that the name of Jesus is glorified. And he will continue to work in us and to teach us and to shape us and to, and to and work through even affliction, even persecution, even all of these negative circumstances and the positive ones. Positive circumstances can lead us away from him well as well. So it's not a just negative. It's life. It's, it's, it's life that we all endure. A life that we all struggle through. And he knows that. And he wants us to think differently about these things when we think about praise and these promises and his power. Life was hard for the Thessalonians. And sometimes it's hard for you and I. Paul's pastoral desire, like all pastors then and now, is to help us think differently about the way we live in Christ. That's my hope, is that you and I can begin to think about Christ in us as we have sang, as we have praised. Christ in us can help us endure all things. And we do it united together as the body of Christ. Let's pray.